0: Hey, everybody, Aaron Solomon here with the NextLevel.com legal podcast. We've got a great guest with us today. We've got Michael Epstein. Michael is known as one of the top personal injury and medical malpractice lawyers, not just in the eastern United States, but throughout the whole country. Michael is a Harvard Law School graduate with very deep roots in New Jersey, which we're going to talk about today. Michael, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate you having me. I'm, uh to do this and chat today.
0: It's my pleasure. So the first thing i got to ask you is what's it like being a New York Knicks fan? Is it just a character building exercise or does it go longer than that?
1: Well, when you've been a Knicks fan for as long as I have been, uh, there's been highs and lows and, uh over the last decade. Uh, it hasn't been easy. We're, we're hopeful that the new regime is taking us back to where we were in the uh, late 80s and early 90s.
0: Well, it's funny because when i think back to my favorite knicks i go even beyond that my favorite knicks were bernard king and walt clyde fraser i was a kid at that point but it was uh, it was definitely prime 70s who were your favorites of all time my two favorite knicks of
1: all time without question are bernard king number 30 and patrick Wing, number 33 uh I love both players. I think Patrick Ewing's not treated fairly by the basketball historians for a guy who gave 110%, never complained, despite he was ravaged with inju- injuries, and uh, he had a great career, uh, never played with a second superstar, so I really love Patrick, and Bernard King's probably my favorite all-time player. Uh, I remember watching him score 50 points three times in a, three games in a row. I practiced that turnaround jump shot from the block many, 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 many many times.
0: (laughs) I love it. Exactly. Yeah, he was a legend. And and he was one of those Knicks legends whose personality transcended way beyond the New York area, where there have been others who were like huge New York guys. But, you know, they didn't really resonate in places like, I don't know, Dallas or L.A., but he was
1: definitely one. Uh, he could he could score the ball real well and when i was a sophomore I finished my sophomore year of high school i went to a basketball camp in garden city long island called the ernie and bernie camp it was bernard king and ernie grunfeld who had played together at tennessee they ran sure. a basketball camp together uh, and i played there and i had a nice week there and at the end of the camp Bernard was coming back from his devastating knee injury and he showed us the workout he was doing in order to get back. And I could tell you that guy really, man, he worked hard. <laughs> I can tell you that.
0: Well, the good thing is there's nowhere to go but up for a team who over the last 10 seasons has a 388 winning percentage. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I really mean that, you know, with the rest of the league continuing to seem at least to get better every single year, uh, there's an opportunity to get better fast in the NBA. And that's something that differentiates it from like a football in the yes. NFL. It's real tough to turn things around kind of the way the, uh, the Buccaneers did this year.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the new coaching staff is critical and he's really just a great coach and you can see him how hard they play defensively. They're playing better. Uh, looks like they have a nice young nucleus And they're the lowest payroll in the league and the youngest team in the league and they're eight and 10 and competing. So you got to hope that uh, they'll continue to draft well and they'll be able to attract some free agents and onward and upward. And if they're fun to watch again, it's my, one of my children who's only 13 has really never seen them good. And now watching them be competitive has been very exciting for her. So uh, we watch a lot of games.
0: I believe it. That's great. So, you know, you're a lifelong advocate for New Jersey I mean, this is something that, you know, your reputation for that precedes you. Everybody that I talk to is he's like a real New Jersey guy. My opinion is that New Jersey is one of the three most underrated states in the United States. I I would include it with West Virginia, which is actually a beautiful state, and Maine. Um, So if you were going to talk to someone who knew nothing about New Jersey, what would you tell them about the state? What should they know?
1: Well, I would say you can't, let's start with what you, you can't do, as opposed to what you can do you can't judge New Jersey based on flying into Newark airport and then getting to your destination, which is usually going to be driven on a highway by some commercial properties and, um, and you're seeing a lot of uh manufacturing and that's not really showing you what new jersey is that's a i've called that's the that's the means to the end not the ends to the means sure so um so I, I always start with that but you can't you know you don't judge a book by its cover if that's your cover um because new jersey is really a very diverse state um in a lot of different ways from geography to people to uh wealth to jobs. Uh, there's a big division between South and North Jersey and what it's like. I mean, you get down South and Southwest, it's, it's farm country. It's very rural. It's, it's it's beautiful. And you have a lot of beautiful landscapes. You know, when you have the East coast of New Jersey from Cape May, which is exit zero all the way up to about an exit 95 to hundred, or even a little further North when it hugs the coast is some of the most beautiful beaches people could see. And people don't, understand that new jersey has what's called the shore and we go down the shore in new jersey um it's just a beautiful beautiful place with some of the biggest and most beautiful beaches you'd ever see anywhere in the world so that's just some of the geography and and i think in new jersey you have good hardworking people and um with great food (laughs) <laughs> I'll say. Oh, was I great. was
0: going to say that. Hey, one of the reasons that New Jersey is has gotten in on people's radar the past few years are these magazines like Sever doing things like saying, "Have you heard of the great New Jersey diner food?" or these pizza things saying, "Have you heard of New Jersey bar pies?" I mean, these are like really, really special things that people outside in New Jersey generally don't know about.
1: Right. So I know that Barstool's uh, had a, the pizza guy did a couple has tasted multiple places of pizza in New Jersey. And it's up there with anyone, if not better. Uh, You know, we have, you want great Italian, you're not getting better than Italian in, in New Jersey, anywhere, and that includes New York City. Uh, you want great Chinese, Japanese, Indian, uh, Jewish food, um, American cuisine, farm to table. We have everything, seafood. We we have everything here. People are really into food. They're into the, there's different geographic areas of food. Um, you know, and it's, it's a fun place to live if you're into food uh, and, and drink. So uh, that's a, it's a nice, it's a nice plus. We have five family from Texas. They come in and one of my favorite restaurants is in Northern New Jersey. And she said, we don't have anything like this. This is just incredible. And it's, you know, he could, this guy could have a restaurant anywhere in Manhattan and it would be super successful.
0: Now you talk about food and drinks. So having spent many, many years uh, in and around the legal industry, What always gets me that people outside the law don't know about is how passionate lawyers are about things aside from their legal practice. So one of the things you're passionate about is wine. So is there wine in New Jersey? Like this is an honest question. And if not, you know, where did you develop your wine passion?
1: Well, I, I think that as a lawyer, you do need to have some hobby or something that you're really interested in that you can be passionate about to give your mind a break. Because I spend so much time on my cases, thinking about my cases. How can I help this client? How can I come up with a creative solution for this problem? How can we be successful in the representation? Which doesn't always mean winning depending on the case. I mean, sometimes it's minimizing a loss um, if you're not doing personal and a non-personal injury case, but our personal injury cases is maximizing recovery. But so for me, one of my great hobbies is wine. And so they, to the answer to your question, Mr. Wine, in New Jersey. Well, there's wine made in New Jersey. If you're a wine person, I'm not so sure you'd want to drink that wine. Yeah. But however, there is plenty. There is plenty of wine to purchase. So, <laughs> yeah. so and in New Jersey, I I believe when I was in Napa Valley once, they said that you, know, you got California, Texas, Florida, I think New York and New Jersey. I think those might be the five biggest consumers of wine. If I recall correctly, those five states, for some reason, that's sticking in my head.
0: So as you were developing your hobby, did you get any formal training or was it just something that over the years you decided to teach yourself about?
1: I would say my training is what you would call the school of hard knocks. Yeah. (laughs) That's the analogy, right? So, but this was not hard knocks. This was fun. So it was mostly trial and error uh drinking figuring out what i like and don't like and my wife is into wine too so what she likes and doesn't like and then as you do that then you start to focus on areas um that you like to drink from and get really knowledgeable in those areas and i used to drink more areas and it's hard to really educate yourself on all of those so i've now kind of pared myself down i'm a i really there's New World versus Old World, which drink a lot of New World Red, Cabernet from, um, from Napa Valley and we like certain areas of Napa Valley. Um, I do like French wines and Italian. Those are the three that I typically buy from and I will dip my toe into Spanish wines here and there, but that's definitely, I don't have the same knowledge base with Spanish.
0: So I think you'll appreciate this. I spent the last four years living in Europe and doing a fair amount of business in and around Paris. So I actually got to go to Reims a couple times um, where they have all the champagne headquarters. Mm. And it's absolutely surreal when you see the size of these vineyards. And, you know, these, these champagne companies sponsor local parks and activities. They're not allowed to sponsor sports teams. It's against the law in France because otherwise mm. they'd all be named after these alcohol companies. Right. But uh, it's just amazing. Like some of these champagne vineyards are miles and miles long. Um, that you can you can just see it's it's really unbelievable how big the industry is when you're in the champagne country in France if you haven't been I definitely commend
1: going I haven't done that but I find being in a vineyard one of the more peaceful places you can be no matter where in the world you know you're out in the open you're out in farmland the oxygen is clean the landscape is beautiful and it really brings a level without even drinking the wine brings a level of tranquility and you know, my wife and I spent time in Napa getting up early in the morning before you do wine tastings and going for a 30-40 minute walk on the roads and off the side roads and walking through vineyards uh, as the fog is coming up and clearing is really puts yourself at ease I could tell you that.
0: Oh Napa is so beautiful I've spent tons of time in, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and while I do like going towards Napa One of my favorite things in the world is the drive down to Big Sur and spending Mm -hmm. a few days in Big Sur. And it's just, it's impossible to describe the feeling in Big Sur because there's just nothing
1: like it. I've been there. I true. It's hard. it, It is hard to describe. I have been there and it's, it is hard. I look forward when this pandemic lifts that I can resume traveling because it is something I think everybody misses.
0: And it's funny that when you talk about your, your wine passion that you were do it yourself. I sometimes think about some of the athletes who've gotten big into wine. And I think one of the more high profile ones is LeBron James. He supposedly is a huge collector and a huge fan of wine. And if you think about what people like LeBron do in their daily life, they're relying on the best training for experts. It doesn't take a lot of internet research to look at LeBron's you know, physical training method. So I wonder if guys like that are kind of self-training in wine, or they're like, I'm gonna find the world's greatest expert and no matter what it costs, they're gonna teach me what I should know. What do you think?
1: I think it's a little bit of a combination at that level. You know, time is so for all of us, time is precious, but for them, there's so much demand on their time from so many people that they have the ability and the financial wherewithal to get people to help them uh, get educated. And my education was expedited. My brother is very into wine. So I would learn from him. I had a very good friend who was in it. And you start trying and you, you, you can expedite your learning process. My father loves wine. So I, but I think that the athletes From what I understand from people who are in the know from the NBA bubble that was down in Disney, I've heard that the amount of wine that was consumed by the NBA players. And the amount of the bills for that wine is off the charts because they're really into it, these guys, you know, whether it's LeBron James Chris Paul and and others and uh, there's a guy. Portland, who just started his own label, uh, this guy McCollum uh, started his own label, and there's football players. There's a football player who's got this cool thing where he'll send you wine that try to hit your palate, and um, he organizes wine collections for you. And so, if someone like LeBron probably has someone who does the purchasing for him, says, "I kind of want this. Let's fill the cellar." I mean, he probably, and then he has it, and he drinks it, and, he, and that's what he does. I can't imagine he's you know, spending a ton of time organizing his wine. Although maybe he does, because it's fun. Who knows,
0: exactly. I can only imagine the stories one day that hopefully, you know, aside of this brother and sisterhood of confidentiality between the players and the amazing reporters who were in the bubble, I really want to read some of the stories that we don't know about today that came out of this once-in-a-lifetime Huge success, which most of us who follow basketball, you know, you and I have talked about this, thought that the percentage chances of this thing actually working were really reasonably low, but it worked beautifully. I'd love to see some of the backstories that made that happen one day.
1: Oh, I can't, I can't wait to see what comes out someday when they write a book about what happened in the bubble, because there was really not a lot for them to do other than play, practice, go for dinner and drink some wine, which, you know, uh, at least they had wine. At least they had wine. Exactly. Wine makes a lot of things better.
0: That's true. And another thing that makes a lot of things better, which I know you're also passionate about is watches. And that's a passion that you and I both share. While I'm not a wine guy, I'm definitely a watch guy. So here's my question. Do you remember when you got your first watch and was it the first watch that hooked you or did you think it was okay and then it was later on?
1: When you say first watch, do you mean like a like a like a like a Mickey Mouse watch or you mean a, like a real watch?
0: Whatever hooked you, because for me it was actually the watch that I got from my parents for my bar mitzvah. That watch, which was a Seiko, Japanese model Seiko, I put that thing on my wrist and at 13 years old, I was done. I was hooked.
1: Right. So that's a good that's a really good question. And I would say that the watch that really got me going was I got a present for, I believe my 21st birthday that my parents were agreed to buy me a gift of a certain amount of money. And the amount of money was not sufficient to buy the watch that I wanted. Okay, yep. so I said, well, I will add on because I had so little money, but I, what I had, I had, and I was saved up. I worked, I saved, I said, well, I'll add on because I want to get this. So I got a tag Hewer watch. It was silver and it had this really cool bracelet with a white face. And I mean, I loved that watch. And that watch, the first time I had a really nice watch that I said, okay, this is this is cool. And I had that for a good many years. And then I got, um, with as a part gift from my grandfather, who's no longer alive, I, I purchased uh, an IWC. Oh, watch, beautiful. Yeah. Which is a great, yeah, great watch, the uh, Portuguese chronograph. And then I wanted, that has a black strap, I wanted a brown strap watch. And what I've been wearing lately, predominantly I have a Ulysses Norden watch, which I absolutely love. and uh, I wear regularly.
0: You know, it's funny, cause as I mentioned to you, I started a watch company along with a partner of mine, who's also a lawyer. And how our company has resonated with lawyers is really amazing. I watch, I mean, I'm not saying, obviously I knew that a lot of lawyers like watches and they'd like wearing watches, but the number of lawyers who are passionate about it and will, you know, give us messages to have conversations about it and wanna know the thought process in the design and how we manufactured our stuff is a lot more than I thought it was gonna be. I gotta say, I was pretty surprised.
1: Yeah, you know, I think, you know, Lawyers like watches. They, they go with the suits, the, the pants, um, the belts and the ties. And I think for, um, for a lot of lawyers, that's their signature piece is a watch. Uh, for me it is I wear a watch and a wedding band. That's the only jewelry I, I, I personally wear. So um, I wanna look at something that turns me on. <laughs>
0: I totally get it. So, you know, we've talked about all these great things that we are passionate about and things that are great diversions and make us feel good from sports to collecting things. I want to talk about the law for a minute. So I recently wrote a piece uh, for one of the bar associations in the South on what I see as the myth versus reality of ambulance chasers in personal injury law. And I brought in a whole bunch of ideas and a bunch of things, including a Shakespeare quote, because I think that personal injury lawyers have gotten a really, really bad rap over the years. So here's my question to you. How do you think that great personal injury lawyers who do amazing work like you do for clients can kind of communicate this better to the
1: world? It's hard, right? Breaking stereotypes, no matter what it is, is not an easy thing to do. Yep. And there's a lot of easy fodder to attack personal injury lawyers. And it's a crowded space and certain marketing that is done. It does not help or assist in the reputation of personal injury lawyers. Here, However, here. So that's a problem, right? So listen, you got TV, you got billboards, you got all these other things where lawyers are gotten competitive and people are trying to outdo each other and get more space and have more recognition and i think i think that's a problem um and there's no vetting to do that you can spend whatever you want you can do it but i think at its core when personal injury work is done right and done well is not about the lawyer it's about the client and you're helping people who cannot otherwise help themselves Um, and I say this and it's my kind of a tagline, I guess I've said it many times. I meet people at their worst. I hope to see them at their best.
0: That's a great line. Really get
1: from to get from the, from get from where I see them to get them to their best is going to take some assistance from me and their medical providers and therapists. So we try to do our part to help them get from a to B, um, And we work really hard and try to give them compensation for what they've lost to try to make them whole so that they can live to the best of their ability a healthy and productive life.
0: So, what tip would you give to law students? I mean, I've talk to law students so many times over the years. So imagine, and this is gonna be the case in real life, some law students are gonna to listen to our podcast. And if anybody's thinking about personal injury or med mal as their eventual areas of practice, what tips would you give them if they're like a 2L or a 3L looking for an experienced word of wisdom or two?
1: Well, that's another good question. And it's hard, is it anyone who people think, and this the reason why people look down on personal this is, easy. is hard. It's very hard work. There's a lot of different challenges in doing this work. Um, defense lawyers are good. Insurance companies are smart. And no one just gives out money to someone who says they're injured. So for young people, I say, you got to make sure this is what you want to do because you need to be passionate about it to do it well, like anything in life. And then if you're a young lawyer, you need to work for someone who is experienced and is willing to mentor and teach the young person how to do this and how to develop a practice. Um, because at the end of the day, everyone should want to have their own clients as well as work for other people's clients, like another, a senior lawyer, but you got to develop. And as a young person, it's hard to get new clients in the personal injury field because you have no experience. So who's going to hire that 25, 26-year-old person on a big case? When you go to someone else, well, how many big cases have you settled? None. So you do need to cut your teeth at a place where you can be mentored and brought along um, to get experience.
0: I love what you said about, you know, people don't understand how the deck is totally stacked against personal injury lawyers when you're going up against insurance companies and these huge, huge corporations who, you know, could afford to settle a lot of cases, but they're not going to do so because they don't want to set precedent. They w- don't want to open a door. And they understand the way the game is played. The game is actually contrary to the belief of the public, not in favor of the personal injury lawyer or claimant. And I think that's something that too many people don't know.
1: Right. Now, the, the law, you got as the plaintiff, you have to satisfy all of the elements of the claim and there are elements by a preponderance of the evidence, which is slightly more than 50%. The defense doesn't have to prove anything. All they have to do is poke holes so that you don't get to that 50. 50% proof or 50.1% proof burden. So you have to prove it. And if anything goes wrong during that a trial, on the plaintiff's side, it mean, usually means it's, you're going to lose, meaning the plaintiff's lawyer has a bad day. The plaintiff, him herself, or herself, doesn't do well on the stand. You lose. The plaintiff's expert doesn't do well. You could lose at any one of those steps before the defense calls one witness. So it is very challenging, and the insurance companies have done a good job of campaigning to explain why people shouldn't give money to injured people. So you you're, you're fighting an uphill battle.
0: I really, really like what you said about law students and mentorship, because we know that there are areas of practice. I'll pick one. Social security disability. Not that hard to learn that coming fresh out of law school. There's a certain body of law. There's procedures in dealing with the administrative bodies. You'll figure it out. It'll be okay. But that's not going to be the case if you're a PI or a med mal lawyer. You're not just going to figure it out because you're a smart kid fresh out of a good law school.
1: Correct. And I, when I first, first got out of Uh, school. And then I worked for a larger firm and I started doing this work. One thing I learned after doing it for a few years is you can't substitute time for knowledge. And there are certain things that you just need time in order to learn. Um, You need a certain number of cases to know how to respond during a trial. You know, how you respond on your first trial is gonna be a lot different than the 15th or 20th when something new happens that you've never experienced. So there's a learning curve. You need time to develop your skills and 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 certain skills will not come without time and practice. That's just the reality of it.
0: And everything you're saying ties back to the beginning of our conversation about athletes as well, right? If you think about great basketball players, Again, there's this myth that the people who make the NBA are just so immensely talented. Obviously, they're immensely talented. But if people saw the work ethic that it takes, not just to get to the NBA, but to get from being a great high school player to being a great D1 college player, to having a chance of getting to the pros and being drafted, it's an unbelievable amount of focus and work. And as you just said, mentorship and things like that as well. Nothing comes easy for those. You got to work for it.
1: That's right. And there are many plaintiff's attorneys who were great athletes. And it's it's not surprising based on what you just said.
0: So let me ask you one final question. So, you know, this is my thesis. Before COVID came, we were already kind of distracted. It's not like before COVID, you know, all of our focus was 100%. So here's my question today. How do you find the time and space to do the kind of deep work that you need to do to do the best by your clients, which you always do. How do you find that today?
1: You just got to dig deep. It's like, it's the fourth quarter, three minutes to go of a game. You got four fouls. You haven't come out and you're exhausted. You got two options. You, and you know, and you know, the team needs you. You have two options. You can tell the coach you need a break and come out and get some water and catch a wind or you can tell yourself i'm not tired and i'm going to keep going and you just find another level and you find another level of resource to produce what you need to do and that's the same thing applies to law you know what it it is a tough time it's a different time and you have to just dig in and find your inner focus so that you can help the people who are relying on you to get them from their worst to hopefully their best.
0: Michael, I think that's a really great way to end it. That was actually super inspirational. I hope that our listeners enjoy it. I hope that everybody enjoyed our time and you enjoyed your half hour coffee as you were listening to us. Uh, and until we see each other again, this is the next level.com legal podcast. Thanks again, Michael.
1: Take care. Thanks for having me.